Welcome to Board Game Famous. And in this episode, we're going to do a special episode, so there's no joke intro. We're doing a con coverage episode, as I just got back from Geekway to the West. Now, who is I? I am David, and I'm joined, as always, with my co-host, Michael. Howdy, howdy. I guess we should start with Michael. What you've been playing before I talk about what I've been playing for the rest of the episode? <laughs> I finally played uh, one, of, one of my board games that I got for Christmas. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> We're recording this in May, so Christmas was five months ago. <laughs> and I just played one of my board games I got for Christmas. It was Iki. It was the re-release of the game that came out, I think, in 2015. Yeah, so Iki was released in 2015 originally by uh, Kudo Yamada. This re-release, the art was done by David Sitbon, and it is gorgeous. And the game is about uh, you are investing in all these artisans and craftsmen and makers in this market in Japan. And you send people out to visit different player stalls to gather resources such that you can invest more into the game and it was uh it was pretty fun um you're running around the market just getting resources and resources trying to improve your stalls all that kind of stuff improve your profits i would say the players all played very differently so i i like the fact that there is slightly different play styles in the game, my strategy was to try to make as many rotations around the market, because it's a round old game. My my strategy was to try to make as many rotations around the market as possible. So, gotta go fast. Were there um, asymmetric player powers, or was this just multiple ways to win and everybody chose a different method? Yeah, multiple ways to win. I didn't I did not win, but I did run around a lot and it was fun. <laughs> so and the person who did win played a completely different strategy, which which I thought was interesting. But I didn't think his strategy was that much more overpowerful than mine was. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you liked it because uh, mom asked me what you wanted for Christmas and I went, oh man. <laughs> let me let me get a board rec- board game recommendation for my co-host. <laughs> yeah. So David, you've been playing the most board games recently because you just went to Geekway to the West in St. Louis, Missouri. Your for- former homeland, actually, Geekway's in St. Charles, right? Yeah, but it's all St. Louis. <laughs> yeah, whatever. I'm not a St. Louis native, so I don't have any like specific St. Louis pride or anything. It was just my local convention that I loved going to. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I had I had a blast at Geekway. I go every year, and this convention lasts four days. And it's entirely devoted to gaming, unlike some conventions. Like a lot of the major ones, Essen, Gen Con, or Origins, they aren't necessarily dedicated to gaming. They're more of announce new games and show off new games and sell new games. But Geekway is all about playing. And their signature event is the Play and Win, where every time you play a game, you are entered into a raffle for a chance to win that game. I spent four days just entering that raffle over and over. I got to play... Uh, How many games did they have available in the play to win? Oh, I don't remember the exact count, but I think it was something like 75. 75 unique games and six copies of each of those games. Uh, With an attendance of about 3,000 people, you need multiple copies, and the shelves were quite low on the very popular games uh, over the weekend, so... 
I'm glad I got there Thursday morning and started checking out the checking out the highlights as soon as I could. Do they also have a game library as well? Yes. So I'm not going to focus on the game library because the the play and win section has enough games for you to play over four days that I don't really go into the library that often, but they have a game library that is extensive. I think it's over a few thousand games that you can check out and play. I typically try and play one game there once uh, once the play and win closes on Sunday. So, <laughs> so that's, that's typically when I enter the library for the first time that weekend. <laughs> I'm all about those, all about winning some games for myself. But part of my experience for this convention was, is volunteering. I like to give back to the board gaming community. I try and create board gaming content in podcast form or comics that I've done in the past. Uh, but I also volunteer at the convention. So I spent, uh, I volunteered for eight hours at the convention in the play and win library. And it's a lot of fun. It, it breaks up the days, so you're not constantly gaming and getting burnt out. Um, you need you need your stamina, <laughs> so those those needed those much needed breaks are really helpful, and it's a it's a great time. You get to chat with everybody at the convention and really get to people watch. That was one of my favorite things to do as uh, as every patron rolled through the the checkout. Um, this this year's convention was. Very different from last year's in the sense that my experience with the games this year was a lot of highs and lows. Whereas last year, the games that I played had were, were a, not great, but all were pretty good. So a consistent, consistent level of quality. Whereas this year, it was all over the map with games I either hated or loved. And I think I prefer that way because i like the uh i like the emotional highs and i think they outweigh the emotional lows plus i'm not i'm not opposed to going i hate this does anybody else want to pack this up and we'll put it back on the shelf <laughs> did you did you stop any games halfway through this time around i did we did stop quite a few games <laughs> this not not all of them because they were bad some of them because they were we didn't have time so how do you want to cover these games Chronological order, favorites, then worse, worse, then favorites, mix it up a few. Uh, definitely chronological order, as that is, I, that is how I have pulled up all of their BGG pages. <laughs> <laughs> Which, unfortunately, there's a real dip on Saturday. We played some, we played some stinkers. <laughs> Alright, Thursday morning. <laughs> Alright, Thursday morning. Ellen and I arrive at the convention. Our friends have yet to show up. So the first thing we do is go to the shelf for a two-player only game, and I pull off Caper Europe by Keymaster Games. It is a two-player drafting game designed by Keymaster, who also do Parks, and then they also did the original Caper. This is the sequel to Caper. And if you know anything about Parks, it's just a gorgeous production, and they they follow through with it here as well. They'd have great components in this everything looks nice everything feels nice in your hands a nice tactile board and cards this is a little drafting game where you're alternating rounds of drafting crew members and gear to pull off the perfect heist in cities in europe it's a good game it's a it's a quality game but it's a little mean for ellen and i 
some of the cards that you can draft and play in front of you. Just get rid of a card on your opponent's side. And if it's a really expensive card that's scoring them a lot of points, there could be some hurt feelings for that. We didn't have that on our side when we played, but I think that's because we were being a little bit nice as we played our cards out. So what you're saying is you're going to save this game for whenever you play with us, your brothers. Well, I don't I don't have it. I didn't win this one. I wouldn't have minded. Like I, like I said, it was a good game. Theoretically, if we were to walk into a board game cafe, you and I. Right. And all of all the board game cafes in all the world, <laughs> you had to walk into mine. <laughs> yeah, I would not be opposed to taking this off the shelf. Uh, and I guess I should state now that a lot of these are just going to be initial impressions as I played most of these games only once. And some of them, not even that. <laughs> Alright, so that was the first game I played. Game number two. Slightly later in the morning. Your <laughs> friends may or may not have arrived at this point. The second game we played was Four Gardens, published by Arcane Wonders. And by this time, our, my friend Aaron had showed up. And this is a... I really don't know how... It's a card management game. It, it was it was interesting, because each of your cards in your hand had multiple uses. You used them to gather resources. You used them as what you wanted to build, uh, as scenes of a panorama that you were building of a beautiful garden, or you used them to move the resources that you had gathered from your, uh, from your personal mat onto these panorama pieces to try and complete them. The gimmick of this one is in the middle of the table, there's this four-tiered pagoda tower, and when you play a card to gather resources, it rotates a section of the tower each level corresponds to one of the type of the resources. When you rotate the tower, it changes the amount you're getting of certain resources. So if I turn it from, if I change it from the bottom, the whole tower rotates. But if I change it from the third tier, only the top three levels rotate and so on all the way up. So you have to manage this tower to get the resources that you want. Uh, a, a problem that I had with this game was... You can only hold four resources, and the max that the tower can give you of one resource is three. So if you don't need that much of a single resource, and but you don't have any cards to turn the tower, your deck could get your uh, your mat could get clogged up with resources that you don't really like, which you can get rid of by playing the move resources card. You're just burning a card to put those resources back in the supply. Which it felt like you wish it could be a little bit more efficient yeah. with, uh, with those unfortunate outcomes. Sometimes. Yeah. And then another issue I had was when you completed an entire panorama, you got a bonus. So you could either grab a tile that gave you more points or gave you a tile that increases the amount of resources that you can hold or gain a tile that lets you move resources around easily. And the panoramas are either are, are pieces that are, are, are like two cards, three cards, all the way up to five cards. And Aaron, who was playing with us, had both pieces of the two panorama in his hand to start with. So he immediately played those out and got an upgrade real quick in the game. Whereas I was only drawing five panorama pieces. It, it was fine. The game was... It was good. It's not going to be any heavy gamer... Shouldn't seek this one out, but it was a nice family game. Little lucky, but 
but not a problem. I actually ended up winning this game. This was the first game I won at the convention. <laughs> now, the next game I played uh, was one of the hot games at the convention. It was not on the shelves very often. And this is the, expan- the newest expansion for Viticulture. Viticulture World. Uh, we are fortunate enough that Jamie Stegmeier and Stonemeyer Games is located in St. Louis, so they're a nice local. Co- they're a nice local company, very, very into the board gaming scene in St. Louis. They they do a lot for, uh, they do a lot for the community in St. Louis, uh, and he also so he donated six copies of the newest expansion, which I don't think is out yet. So people at this convention got a chance to play it before anyone else really. Uh, so I was glad to get this one off the shelf. And the big thing about Vic- Viticulture World is it turns it into a cooperative game. So you have a new board that you play on and certain objectives that you have to meet depending on the scenario that you're playing. So every single player has to get up to 25 points. And then there's also a new influence track that you have to get up to 10. When you play your Grande Worker... And in normal worker placement fashion, whenever you place a worker, no one else can go to that space. The twist in Viticulture is you have a Grande worker that can never be blocked. And when you use your Grande worker in Viticulture World, you're also allowed to trade with who you're visiting. And that's a really neat twist, I thought. Um, so you can give them money if they need to if they need to build a building. You can trade wines that you've created. You can trade grapes so they can help. Uh, so they can create their wines more easily because everybody needs to reach 25 points. So everybody needs to be meeting wine orders. Is there some kind of timer that you're working against? You have exactly six rounds to do this. Money is tight and time is short. So you have to you have to work together and trade adequately to beat the game. And we didn't we didn't win. And this was playing on the the intro game essentially and during the intro game this is a little bit of a spoiler you're flipping over cards each season that gives you access to a new action for that round and one of the cards just straight up gives you points and influence and we still couldn't quite make it jeez. Oh, and i think i think the flaw of this game is you need players that are familiar with viticulture and i've played it two or three times but my last play was a few years ago and i was the most experienced in viticulture pretty much everyone else had only played it once max so we really struggled getting everybody up to 25 points i will say it was close but we still i think we would have won if if we'd played eat all played viticulture once or twice did you at least find it fun that's a good question say someone someone already owns Tuscany Complete Edition, or whatever the edition is that has all the previous expansions. Viticulture, Tuscany. Yeah, it's Viticulture, Tuscany are the the two big ones that you should own. Correct. Um, Would they consider getting this expansion? Only if they love cooperative games. And I say that because Viticulture World is mostly incompatible with Tuscany. There's one module that you can add from Tuscany into this, and it's on the reverse side of the player board, but we didn't play with it because we only had Viticulture Essential Edition and uh, Viticulture World. I, I'm not going to judge this game too harshly. I think it would have gone better if we were more experienced in Viticulture, but also another problem that we had was 
players need to be aware of this. This is longer than Viticulture. It, it does take longer. But also, we played it starting at, I think, 11.30, and we hadn't had lunch yet, and we finished around 2 or so. <laughs> so there was a little bit of hanger in there. <laughs> so I enjoyed it. I could see from a design perspective how it was a very good game. Uh, but if you're not into cooperative games and you like Viticulture just fine as is, or especially with Tuscany, probably pass on this. And then... To wind down from such a long game, I grabbed a party game off the shelf. One that I had seen in uh, stores before. Uh, this is I think you can pull this off the shelf at Target right now. And it's a game called Hues and Cues. Published by The Op. And this is a pretty mass market style game where you've got a board that's laid out in a grid and on the grid is just a color gradient. So it's a rainbow squares all across the board and there's a numbered grid on the side so you could locate a specific square. And on your turn, players draw a card that has four of those square options. They choose one and they describe it to the other players trying to get them to guess which exact square on the map it is. So, the rules say, give a one-word clue, and then people place guess markers out, then say a two-word clue, and then people put guess markers out, and you have this little ruler box that tells, if you get it exactly right, it's three points. If you're one off, it's two points. If you're two off, you're, it's one point. And I think those rules are okay, but... I played with a house rule saying, instead of saying a one-word description or a two-word description, you can say as many words as you want. Just be as descriptive as you like. And and I thought it was as a long... As, long as, you, as long as you don't use, like, with any without any limitations? Like, can you use descriptor words like, oh, it's blue to blah, blah, blah kind of thing? Or Yeah, you couldn't say that. Uh, you couldn't say things like that. But yeah. use your imagination. So we had clues like the most perfect robin's egg. Or what was another one? There was <laughs> one of my favorite clues was uh, carrot vomit. Somebody get <laughs> somebody said our friend Aaron who gave the clue carrot vomit. It was guessed exactly right. Somebody was like, "Yep, that's a hundred percent that color." Beautiful. Uh, a, a problem I had with this game is you play up to fifty points. That's what the score tracker goes to. And this is a bit of a one-note game that does not deserve a 50-point score tracker. I think we played to, like, maybe 20. <laughs> the fact that it has, what, 500-something squares of different colors? Yeah. Or more? Yeah. It's a fun game for a little while. It's not something that I need to own. It's definitely something I'm not playing up to 50 points on. But it was still good. It was still good. I think I had the highest opinion of Hughes and Cues when we were done, because as I was... Ellen was the one recording all the games that we played. She also put a rating by it, and she gave it a 1 out of 5. <laughs> oh, jeez. Oh, no. Well, with <sighs> your palate pleasantly cleansed. <laughs> oh, yeah, that was just like, okay, we just did a big, heavy game. Let's do this light, silly game. And I think, I think it worked well. I think it worked well. Uh, and that got us ready for our next game which is Decorum, published by Floodgate Games. This was one of my favorites of the convention. Just, I'll just say that right now. Like This was a highlight. 
And I'll, I'll mention that on all the highlights. So Decorum is a cooperative deduction game where you all the players are people who are living in a house and are trying to decorate it. But you have a card that has the requirements the house has to meet for you to be satisfied, or as the game calls it, fulfilled. And there are aspects of the rooms that you're changing, such as the color of the walls, the lamp that's in the room, the painting that's hanging on the wall, or a curio that can be found in that room. And all four rooms are treated the exact same. And this game was a hoot. Because every round, you get to make one change. You can paint a room, you can swap types of items, because each item has a different style that you can have. So you can have an antique lamp, you can have a unique lamp, you can have a modern lamp, things like that. But every time you make a change, everybody gets to tell you how they feel about that change based on their rules. Now, you can't say, I don't like that because I don't want lamps in this room. You have to be you have to be vague about it. The rules say, be vague. So people will be like, I'm going to paint this room blue. And the next person just goes, I hate it. We can't have it blue. <laughs> and, and the rules say, the, the rules describe it in a way that you're supposed to be vague. But we really got into it and started role playing. We towed the line on the clues that we were supposed to give. But, oh, man, it was so much fun to the point where when somebody made a change, I said something and it was in line with my rules. I said something along the lines of like, I hate that lamp and I have no idea why you would put a lamp in the bathroom. And Ellen asked me, like, all right, is this is this real life or is this based on your rules? Because we were <laughs> we were role playing it so well. So that's kind of interesting. I, uh, I played a board game. Kind of like what you're saying, where you have to collectively create something based on a certain rules, but you only have limited information. I played a game like that, but it was physical shapes. Mm -hmm. uh, we had different limitations of what color box you're allowed to touch or uh, <laughs> what, what, you're, what you're allowed to say. Like, oh, you can only touch triangular shaped blocks or something like that. And what you can say... And I, I think this is, from what you're describing, this is a better version of that just because of the abstraction. I don't think people did well with the, the, geometric, the, the geometric difficulties. Oh, I think, I think that's a really good point. Yeah, the theme really did help, and the, we really got into it. So the tagline of this game is a, a game of passive-aggressive cohabitation. And, man, did my group paint, bring that theme to life. When To win the game, you need to listen to the complaints that people are making and try and understand why they're making changes that they are so you can make proper changes so everybody can be fulfilled by the end of the game because you only have so many turns. We brought that passive aggressiveness to life when I think three turns in a row, people painted the same room just back and forth different colors like... Green, no, I want it blue. I hate that. It's going to be red. <laughs> That's hilarious. I wish, I wish I could remember the name of the game that I played. Oh, well. Well, that was Decorum. Do you have any more games left from Thursday? Yes, two more games left on Thursday. We played a lot of games on Thursday. So the next game I got to play was Cascadia. 
published by Flat Out Games and AEG. I've been hearing a lot about this game, and because it's the follow-up to one of mine and Ellen's absolute favorites, which is Calico, and it plays very similarly. So it is a tile-drafting game where you're building out your own little area of tiles, trying to create the biggest environments in a little habitat and placing little animals on each habitat. The animals all score in different ways. Some want to be by themselves, some want long runs, some want other animals around them, and it's a very puzzly game. And I was, I was grateful for the chance to play this and compare it to Calico. And I think I like Calico better, even though I'm in the minority, but I think it draws parallels to how I felt about the convention. Because Calico has a lot of highs and lows where you are hoping, hoping for a very specific tile, and I can't wait for that tile to come out and grab it and get the perfect play. Oh, but somebody takes it, and oh, I hate that. I think that emotional experience, that roller coaster, is a more fun game experience for me. Whereas in Cascadia, I'm just hoping for maybe that type of animal, and I don't care if it's paired with a certain type of terrain, and it's a base level of very good. Is it more of the uh, the unlimited three-dimensionality of Cascadia as compared to Calico? Calico, where you're in a confined space, but in Cascadia, you can work with any open tile that you still have, where it's quote-unquote legal? I think so. I think, that's, uh, I think that's my biggest complaint about it, because Calico, as your space gets smaller and smaller, you get down to very specific tiles, and you get that that hope, that need for that one tile. And if you get it and pull it off, it's just, it's always going to be a better experience than Cascadia in that instance. And that hope for that perfect play of Calico elevates it above Cascadia for me. I don't know about you. I still have that stressful end of, end of game anticipation feeling in Cascadia. I haven't played Calico yet. I thought you played it with me. No, that's the other brother. Oh, okay. <laughs> Yeah, Cascadia was very good. Um, each animal type felt a lot like the scoring patches in Calico, which is one of the scoring tiles, one of the scoring methods in Calico, which is Ellen's favorite way to play Calico. So I think she might have liked Calico. Uh, she might have liked Cascadia more than me, and I don't blame her. It, w it was a good game. It's just not, not for me, not not my favorite. The final game on Thursday was Long Shot the Dice Game. This is a roll and write published by Perplexed Games. And it's just a short little roll and write where you're rolling dice and moving horses. Every time you roll the dice, it show one die shows the horse that you move, and the other die shows how far it goes, and you're just betting on horses. It's quick, it's fairly simple, and it's hilarious. You are just betting on horses, hoping that you'll win. You can own horses. You can go to the concession stand and get bonuses. It's really fun. Everybody gets to take a, an action every single time that you roll the dice, so it's pretty quick. You're always engaged. If you like racing games and are looking for a short, simple one, this is a good recommend. I'm not great at racing games, and I came in second to last. So you're telling me your horse didn't win. My, my the, a horse that I owned came in, sec, came in second place, but my bets didn't pay out big. That was my problem. Yeah, I'm just never good at betting. It's like a, uh, a quicker, more fun version of Downforce. Uh, you know, I think I do prefer this to Downforce. It's it, just like Downforce, it's a racing game, but it's over quicker. 
Uh, I think there's a little bit more tension in Longshot the Dice Game than there is in Downforce. But just like in Downforce, I've never won. <laughs> <laughs> this brings us to Friday. Friday morning. Early. 8 a.m. Well, 8 a.m. I was still at uh, <laughs> still at our Airbnb in St. Louis. Friday, 9 a.m. I started getting thinking about going uh, because our first volunteer shift was 10 to noon. So we didn't play any games in the morning. We just met up in the afternoon. <laughs> so this is going to be a much shorter day. <laughs> the first game we played on Friday was Creature Comforts, published by Kids Table Board Games. This is a very cute Woodland Creatures wood, uh, worker placement game. And since, uh, and since Everdell's my favorite game, I thought this would be right up my alley. And I didn't hate it. It, w- it was good. The unique twist on worker placement on this one is it's a little bit of push your luck. Each round, every player rolls two dice. And when you send workers to a location, they need to, be, they need to have dice allocated to them to activate that certain location. And each location tells you what die number it needs or if it needs a run of dice or a pair or anything like that. But you only have two dice. And then after you place all of your workers, a communal pool of village dice are rolled and you just hope that the numbers that you need get, uh, get rolled. And then everybody in turn order resolves all of their work, their workers at once. So I would go, I would use all the village dice, and then I would put them back for the next person to use. I think this was a pretty good game for families. No workers block any spots when you're gathering resources. Um, so you can send you can send your workers to the same place everybody else. So there's not a lot of confrontation. And it's just, just push your luck. So whoever pushes their luck a little bit better uh, will probably come out on top. Sounds like you needed some of that dice manipulation. I mean, you get dice manipulation if you if you send a worker to a spot and the dice don't come your don't go your way. When you get your worker back, you get a lessons learned token, and that lets you modify the value of dice in future rounds. So it's it was well done. I didn't have any complaints on that. It was just it was fine. It was more of a family weight game, not necessarily what I was looking for. In the as the first game of the day, but that was that was Creature Comforts. It was cute. It was adorable. Uh, I think the rules say fourteen plus, which seems like a bit much. Yeah, I think I'm looking at the box. Oh, the box might say eight plus. Oh yeah, the box says eight plus, so it'd be good for younger kids to to get into. Like it wasn't it wasn't super easy, but you could definitely introduce this to younger players, and that's it. Just wasn't for me. It would and it wasn't for the entire group of adults we were playing with. <laughs> David's just not into wee baby kid games. That's not true. The next game of the convention is Paleo. I was really excited about this one, and I don't think it disappointed. This one, I believe, won the Kenner Spiel last year, or two years ago. I need to look that up. Michael, look it up. 2021's Kenner Spiel. Yeah, I thought so. So... Having that having that pedigree, I was really expecting a good game out of Paleo, and I don't think it disappointed for the experience that it promised. And this is a game that simulates player uh, players simulate being the first humans on on Earth. They have to figure out the world. 
They have to survive. They have to make it through the night. And I think it did a really good job simulating that. Every single round, a single deck of cards is divvied up, and this is the day phase. And every single card on the back gives you an indication of what you might see. So there's pictures with woods on the back, or a creek, or a mountain, or dangerous thorns, or a fire where people might gather around and trade. And you draw the three cards off the top of your deck, only looking at the back, and place two of them down, and flip over the card that you chose. And that card gives you some options, and it, and it signifies you exploring the world. You have an idea of what might happen, because like, oh, I've been to woods before, I think I know what might go on here, but you're not 100% sure what you're going to see each time. And it was just, it was fun that that explore it was an exploration style game in a way that I hadn't seen before. And it, it was charming, really. I, I was charmed. <laughs> the only problem that I had with this was Aaron and I played through it as a two-player game, and then Ellen joined us for the joined us at a later time for the second mission of Paleo. And even though we're normally a bunch of betas, Aaron went hardcore alpha gamer, which you might need to do because resources are tight in this game. Every single night we had to have a tent. If we didn't build a tent every night, we would somebody would die. And if five people die, it's game over. So you can lose this game in super quick. I'm thinking like two or three rounds. Uh, so he was he was trying to make sure we did not lose that way, and we had too many people to feed, and we died anyway. <laughs> oh, jeez. Yeah. Overall, it was still enjoyable. This is one of those things I would play with the same group all the way through, so everybody's as experienced. But is it was. It more of a can- is it more of a campaign style game? It it is, and I'm wondering that if once you finish the campaign. Do you need to go back to it because it might have lost that exploration allure once you know what every card does? That's that's my concern for the longevity of this game. But the first few plays are almost magical. I, I want to talk about the spoilers, but I can't. Every single round there are secrets that some cards that you've added to the deck will help you uncover. We flipped over a secret and went, yep, yep. Yep, that was bad. We shouldn't have done that. <laughs> we learned. As as cave people, we learned. <laughs> and I think the I think the system just once again, this this was one of those games where I got into the theme a little bit. And that's something I found myself doing this convention, which is not something I normally do in games. But it was great. Then what did you play? And the next game I got to play was Libertalia, Winds of Galecrest, the new edition of Libertalia released by Stonemeyer Games. They had quite a few games in the plan when this uh, this year, and I was excited to get another one of them to the table. I was learning this as a two-player game, as everybody else was busy uh, running some errands in the afternoon. So I was gonna I was gonna play this with my friend Aaron, and as I was setting it up and and learning how the two-player version worked, Susanna from Stonemaier Games, she's community outreach, no, not community outreach. She works for Stonemaier Games, getting their games into stores, is what she said. Shout out to Susanna. Shout out to Susanna. She asked if she could join us, and she taught us how to play, and we had we had an absolute blast on this one. In Libertalia, you, one player shovels up a deck of cards numbered 1 through 40 and draws six cards off the top. Then everybody else finds those exact same six cards and puts them in their hand. 
and each round you're playing cards to try and steal money from other players, grab loot tokens uh, off of the voyage board, and store them in your chest and score points. It's chaotic because you don't know what other people are going to play, but since everybody has the exact same hand of cards to start with, you know their options. So you really have to guess what other people are playing. This is one of those games I got to play a couple of times throughout the convention. So the first play, I won. And I was like, wow, this game's really good. And then the second time we played, I got whomped down on. Because I was like, I was not expecting you to play that card. But that's on me. Because I know you have it as an option. Because it's in my hand too. I should have known. Yeah. There's two things, because I have played this game before. There are two things that I like about this game a lot. First thing is, when everyone plays a card, you have actions that that trigger from lowest card number to highest card number, and then you have actions that trigger from highest card number down to lowest card number. And, and it was, you are correct. And it was that... It, it's that mechanism that's very good in the game, but it's also what screwed me over the second play. Because yeah. I played a card that would let me take two loot tokens. And I was so excited. I was going to get two good loot tokens. However, uh, Aaron played one that went that went after me during the day phase. So we activated his power later in the day. But the night phase is when you grab loot tokens. And he switched loot tokens from the next voyage. So when I was grabbing two lo loot to tokens, the only ones that were available was Cursed Treasure, which loses you points. Yeah. So he made sure yeah. that I had a bad time. You made a small note there that the listeners might not have picked up as. This game occurs over multiple rounds. At the beginning of the game, you start with six different cards. Well, yeah, six different cards, but everyone starts with the same six cards. Unless you end up playing a card later that changes this fact, the cards you play in each round, you don't get back. So mm -hmm. you may play card different cards in the first round, and then in later rounds you're getting additional crew members... And so the the mix of cards that people get get more and more complicated as as the uh, game goes on. Right, because you don't play every crew that member card that you have in your hand each round. You save some over from round to round. So each round, your hands get a little bit more different. And I think it was really well done. It's a little bit more chaotic than I than I like in most games, but I won this game as a door prize since I volunteered. I was entered into the Geek Guide door prizes and this is the game that i won and i'm very excited about it. it it is a game not to be taken too seriously it requires a little bit more thinking than a game i, I would say like galaxy trucker which you don't take seriously at all mm -hmm. um just because at least there is some strategy into it but uh there are so many funny scenarios that come from the cards that people end up choosing and in the way that they trigger right and but the the chaos in this game which is not something i enjoy in games I, I can handle it because all the information you need is right in front of you. Something yeah. bad is happening to you because you didn't expect them to play that card. That's the right way to add chaos into a board game. It's like that one scene in The Princess Bride. The uh, the poison chalice. Oh, poison exactly. Chalice. <laughs> yeah, the poison chalice scene. <laughs> where you're just sitting, you're just sitting there, and you're just saying, hey, 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 "Because you're gonna play this, and then blah blah blah." But because you're blah blah blah. Truly, you have a dizzying intellect. <laughs> <laughs> and then the final game for Friday was Honey Buzz, designed by Paul Solomon. 
and published by Elf Creek Games. This is a sort of a worker placement game? Not really. It's more of a worker bidding game with a nice lovely bee theme on it. Uh, your goal is to be the best beehive, creating honey and filling the orders of all the other woodland critters and their needs for honey. And you do this by placing workers in hive sections that let you add these hive tiles to your board. And when you complete a circled hexagon, you get to take all of the actions on those tiles. So it's kind of a delayed worker placement game where you're you're bidding for these tiles to add to your hive. And once you complete a section of your hive, that's when you get to activate all of those actions. So it takes a lot of forward planning. And it was... It was, it was delightful. It was incredibly fun. You don't block anybody in these worker placement spaces per se, but as you, one of the actions is you add more, you add more beeples, as they're called in the game, to your hive. Cute. That's uh, really cute. It, it is. It is cute. And the, and the beeples themselves are adorable. But as you add them to the board, let's say I, I put one bee in the spot to take a production, a, a honey production tile. Somebody can still go there by placing two bees. And then anybody can go there by placing three bees and then four bees. And it just gets, it gets more and more. And then eventually you run out of bees and have to recall all of your beeples. It was thinkier. This is exactly the kind of weight of game that I enjoy. It wasn't incredibly heavy, but it wasn't, it wasn't like creature comforts light. It was the right amount of thinkiness that I like in a game. You have to do some clever forward planning. You have to position your tiles correctly to, cr to create and collect the right type of honey to fill the orders. It was really good. It was enjoyable. This actually might, and we might end up buying this one. Very nice. Yeah, because normally, normally we have one free buy out of the convention, but we won two games, so we didn't, we didn't buy anything right away. But uh, we'll think about this one. And this brings us to Saturday morning, 8 a.m. Saturday morning, 8 a.m. was my volunteer shift. My last volunteer shift lasted four hours, and I volunteered from eight to noon. Then Aaron showed up with some Didi Mao, a delicious, delicious Vietnamese restaurant in St. Louis. Shoutouts to Didi Mao. We go, then we go, we try and go there every single time we're back in town. And then after that, we played First Empires, published by Sandcastle Games. And First Empires is the second game from Sandcastles. The first one being the smash hit Res Arcana. Have you had a chance to play that one? I played it a few years ago at Geekway. I don't know if I could describe it adequately for me, to you, but it's designed by Tom Lehman. Who help. did Race for the Galaxy and Dice Realms. Sure haven't played it. <laughs> I'd like to play it. No, this one's not designed by him, though. I was just saying the other, the other game that Sandcastle Games had under their belt. This one's designed by Eric Vogel. And this is a Yahtzee-style game where you're rolling dice and re-rolling them to get the results that you want. But it's a clever little area control game. And I think this is probably as simple as area control can get. There are five tracks that you have uh, that you're trying to bump up, and the tracks correspond to different areas on the board and the different die faces that you can have. Uh, so you've got a track that lets you have more dice, a track that lets you have more rerolls, a track that lets you move more meeples on the board on your turn, a track that lets you draw special action cards, and then finally one that lets you put more meeples on the board. And when you control an area and roll that specific die face, you get a bump up on that track. You just get more powerful and powerful as the game goes on. But this game is dead quick. It lasts maybe 
30 minutes for the three-player game that we played, and it was it was good. It was very enjoyable. It wasn't great, but it was it was good. A fun little Yassi-style game. It's not too confrontational. While it is area control, every time you take over a spot, all of those meeples aren't removed from the board. They just get pushed back to a different spot that that person controls, and they get to choose where those are. Doesn't have to be adjacent. They can move them anywhere. It was just a it was a delightful little 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 area control game. And then after that game, you played your favorite game of the conference. No, I think my favorite game of the conference was either Libertalia or Honeybuzz. I was gonna say. I was guessing your next one was not your favorite game. No, Saturday we didn't play a lot of games that we loved. So this was this was the high point of Saturday. <laughs> oh, buddy, wrap in listeners. Uh, the next game I played was Boone Lake. It was the new Alexander Fister game of Great Western Trail fame. I've I really enjoy most of Alexander Fister's designs that I have played. This one has a lot of interesting mechanisms, but because it's so jam-packed full with mechanisms, we didn't finish this game. Ellen didn't sleep super well the night before, so she went home to take a nap, and she said, I will be back in an hour. In that time, we played about a third of the game. So when she got back, we were like, okay, we're done. We're good. I I see what this game is about. Were you misled by what the box said? No, no. I knew it was going to be a heavy Euro game. I just thought we would... I had played Great Western Trail before. I've played several others of his before. I thought I would be able to get it up and going faster. But because I think this one is a little little convoluted with uh, the mechanisms that are going on in there. But I do want to highlight a couple, of act- uh, a couple of good things about the game. It's got an action river. The actions that you can take are, are in a row. And if you take the cheapest action, you pick it up, you slide it all the way back to the to the action board and it slots in and each action's on a tile it slots in at the very back so the next person can take it but it's more expensive for them and that was an interesting mechanism to play around with in the game we only played a third of the game so i was literally just pushing buttons pulling levers trying to figure out how this game worked and i had fun but i didn't play it enough to give it a give it a rating really the one mechanism that i do want to highlight is when you build buildings, they cost money and then resources, but there's no resource gathering that you have. You have production plants that are labeled in order on the banks of a river with two boats that you can move up and down the river. Each boat produces one of those goods at the spot on the river that it's at. You can move them downriver for free. So you can move them downriver as much as you want. But if you want to move them upriver, like later in the game, you want to pay pay for a, a building that has a good that's upstream, you have to pay money to move that boat upriver. And I thought that was cool. Yeah, I thought it was clever. And I, I did wish that I played the game longer so I could play around with that a little more. That was just something I thought was interesting from a design perspective. All right, three more games to go. We can do this. The next game we played was The Court of Miracles, published by Lumberjack Studio. This is the game I was telling you about before we started recording, that it is aggressively average. I don't have a lot to say about this game. Uh, It's kind of an area control. You're putting out discs with power on them to try and put out your little fortresses. The first person to put out six fortresses wins. The nicest thing I can say about this one, besides the fact that the art is gorgeous, is it passes the time. I didn't hate it. I didn't love it. 
and now I have an exact middle mark for games, that it has to be better than this game to be pretty good, and it has to be worse than this game to be bad. So I have now found my bowl of oatmeal game. This is, it's fine. It's just fine. Like I said, come on, don't hate on oatmeal. Right. I'm not hating. I'm not talking about like brown sugar oatmeal. That's above oatmeal. This is <laughs> just oatmeal. <laughs> it's it's fine. It'll keep you alive. <laughs> and I think I think when we were talking earlier, I said something along the lines of, "If we had just it, it was quick, so I didn't I, I couldn't hate it because it was definitely really quick. I think it took twenty thirty minutes. But you know, if I didn't play it for twenty thirty minutes, you know, it would have been just the same. It didn't add anything of value to my life." And that's really all I have to say on the Court of Miracles. <laughs> then the next game was... The next game was Azul Queen's Garden. The latest addition to Azul. And this we... Is edition, this is uh, edition number four, correct? This is edition number four. And we hated it. It was not good. So, and take my opinion with a grain of salt, because I originally was meh on Azul. It has since grown on me. What would you say is the best couple of things about Azul itself? Like, the original Azul? Uh, besides the quality of the tiles? Besides the quality of the tiles. The tension. The tension of drafting, trying to determine the best time to take That's tiles. right. That's, that's right. The approachability of the game. It's super easy to yeah. learn. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yes. There we go. It's, the rule set is incredibly simple. And that rule set has maintained largely the same through Azul up until this iteration, where that simplicity is just thrown out the window. I talk about how I like more complicated games. Two games before this, I was trying to learn an Alexander Pfister game, but that game is worth it. It it has the mechanisms, it has the the interactions, the gears to make it worth it. This was complications for complications' sake. My question is, how many people did you play this with? I played it with two other people. Uh, so this is just a three-player game. When you're drafting tiles, now they have two characteristics. Color and number. But the number they have on them is done by some iconography on it. And it's a little bit poor. So that doesn't help it. It makes it a little confusing. So when you're drafting tiles, you can draft all of the same of one thing. But the other characteristic has to be different. So I can draft all of the dark green tiles, but all of the symbol on them have to be different. Or I can draft all of the same symbol, but all the colors that I draft have to be different. And that extra layer adds just enough complication that people are always taking tiles wrong. Or when you play a tile, you now have to pay for them, which I thought was a strange design choice, but you have to pay for them in the same way. So I'm playing this dark green tile. I can pay for it with other dark green tiles of different symbols or the same symbols, but different colors. And it was just confusing. It really stabbed at the heart of what the original Azul had really dug a knife in there and, and tore it out for this edition. I felt Were the tiles nice. The tiles were nice. You know, the the <laughs> tiles were the same quality. Let me rephrase that. The tiles were nice, but I had talked about how you had to pay for tiles with different colors. There are two shades of purple that are just not different enough. <laughs> Have you taken the uh, colorblind test yet? It wasn't for me. It was for my friend Aaron. 
And I believe that was the last game we played for the convention on Saturday. We went over to uh, our friend's house, the Shuttles. Shout out to Jacob and Jillian. They're regular listeners, and uh, they're very good friends of mine. They made us dinner, and we played a round of wait, Welcome wait, to... Wait, 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 didn't Jillian design the logo? Yeah, Jillian designed our logo. I was going to say, don't just say they're regular listeners. <laughs> they're, uh, you're right, you're right. <laughs> Jacob, Jacob's a regular listener. He's just an average listener. Jillian is a special listener. <laughs> she designed our logo. <laughs> and we went, we went over to their house and we played a round of Welcome To and a round of Space Base. And the Space Base was fun. But the round of Welcome To was one of my most favorite rounds of Welcome To I've ever played. Aaron opined that uh, it, the hardest part of the game was naming his town. So I immediately named my town Aaron's Butthole. <laughs> 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 to which to which Jillian replied, I'm going to name mine Aaron's Taint because it's just a little bit better. <laughs> and, and true to our words, I came in very last and Jillian beat me by one point. <laughs> and we were just oh. talking smack the entire game. Did I tell you that I played Welcome to Easter Edition? No, I didn't. It's a good one, isn't it? I didn't care for it. Oh, bummer. <laughs> I was like, this egg hunting seems unnecessary. <laughs> oh, I love it. It forces you to put numbers you wouldn't normally put in a spot. And and, and I think it, it adds a fun twist to it. But but back to the game we played. It was just really fun that night <laughs> watching Aaron be uncomfortable as I said things like, oh man, I'm not doing too well. Aaron's butthole is not a great place to live. <laughs> <laughs> I could have told you that. <laughs> so, are you an Oceanside community? Do you have butthole surfers? That is a niche joke. <laughs> <laughs> that is a niche joke. <laughs> yeah. Uh, shout out to the butthole surfers. <laughs> now, Sunday was dedicated to replaying all of our favorite games, making sure we got multiple chances to win them. But also, the last new game that we played was Flourish, published by Starling Games. And I wanted to play this one because it was designed by the same man, uh, by the same person who designed uh, Everdell, along with his wife. So James Wilson and Clarissa Wilson. I have expressed my opinions about this game on this podcast already. I don't remember what you said about it. I'll tell you after after you tell me what how you felt about it. I thought it was fine. It was okay. It was a. It was over quick, so I did. I was never gonna. I'm never gonna have any complaints about games that go quickly, because it's only four rounds where you're drafting three cards. It's lovely artwork of plants. You have every round you play one plant into your garden, and then you pass two uh, two cards over one to each of your neighbors. Uh, and at the end of the game, whoever scores the most points wins. It's not groundbreaking. But it's good artwork, and I think it's like a little step up from Sushi Go. I thought it was more interesting than Sushi Go, so I thought it was enjoyable. I just think that the this is a consensus opinion. From your game uh, group? From my game group, that the iconography is unnecessarily vague, and we had to spend about as long as it took to play the game just looking at the cards, trying to figure out what the hell we actually had and what it actually meant. And then checking with everybody to make sure that they understood their cards and what it actually meant. Because the 
the aids that we had, we didn't think were helpful. And so well, didn't... the drafting style game we thought was fine. It was just the iconography wasted so much of our time whenever we first played it. We, we didn't really enjoy that we had to waste half, half the time actually figuring out what the hell we were looking at. And we didn't find that the player aids were that helpful because we were literally going around the table like people were showing each other their cards, just making sure everybody knew what exactly what everybody everything meant. Mm-hmm. I, we didn't have a problem with that. Maybe I'm just a better games teacher than whoever taught your game. What up? I don't know if they're a listener or not. <laughs> they are. They're going to be my co-host. So. <laughs> <laughs> Come at me. Oh, you got to find a new co-host then. They can't replace me. <laughs> they got to step their game up. <laughs> Yeah, those those are all the games that I played. It was 16 unique games, so it's been a lot of talking for me. The highs were definitely Libertalia, Honeybuzz, and Paleo. Oh, Decorum. So those were the top four. So that's the top 25%. The bottom 25% would probably be Azul, The Court of Miracles, Hughes and Cues, and then uh, probably Four Gardens. Those are probably my bottom four. But, man, I love going to board game conventions. I got to play 16 new games over four days. It's not our best. Last year, we got to do 24 games, but they were typically shorter games. We played bigger games, more bigger games this... More longer games this time around. It's, it's just a blast finding going to a convention, playing these games. If you don't have a group to go with, there are plenty of people who, who will invite you in. I was standing up. Uh, I was standing up waiting for my group to find me. Somebody just walked right up and said, "Hey, are you looking for player? If you look, are you if you're looking for a group to game with, we got a game of Ark Nova set up over here, and we'd love to have you join. Ark Nova's the new hotness. It's on my list to play. I can't wait. It would take way too long. My group was right around the corner. <laughs> I was gonna say, whenever I was playing Iki, people were playing Ark Nova. Oh yeah, it's it's hot right now. Hot. It's hot. And thankfully, uh, board gamers are." Pretty nice, especially at conventions, mm-hmm. to being welcoming to other people to play. Yeah, we had we had a couple of uh, people in our groups play games. I, I know we had a, a rando play with us for Creature Comforts, and and Susanna just walked up to play with Libertalia with us. It was a lot of fun, uh, and it's a great place to play a bunch of games and figure out what you like. And that was that was my convention wrap up. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you want to contact us about anything you heard on this podcast or or have any comments that you want to share, you can reach out to us at our email at boardgamefamous at gmail.com or you can add us on Instagram using the link below or you can join our Discord using the link below if you're in Spotify because apparently the links don't really work if you're not using Spotify. <laughs> Sorry, Scott. Sorry, Scott. <laughs> Please join us in another fortnight where we'll talk about board games. Bye-bye. Maybe I'll talk about them too. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Bye-bye now. (laughs) Bye-bye.